patience, Padawan. <laughs> Don't you Padawan me. God, is there anything worse than the Star Wars prequels? Uh, we can talk about this off mic. So, Steve, this is the 23rd episode that we're coming up on. And as always, we drink a lot during these podcasts. And I just, before we get too, uh, too in the bag, I want to go over the rules of this podcast again. So this is a podcast where we drink. Okay. Sometimes heavily. Yes. While we watch a film. Right. Uh, so and then we record an analysis of our viewing experience. While continuing, while to drink. continuing to drink, oftentimes not not in excess, but you know more than your average drinking individual. Yeah, I. Let's <sighs> face it. Sometimes we're not in a good state of mind to be doing film analysis, and oftentimes that leads to us afterwards having post mortem thoughts on films that we realize. Oh, I wish I'd brought that up. You want to know what I want to say? What's that? Space Jam. Space Jam. You want to know what? What about it? Bugs Bunny's a huge dick. Well, Bugs Bunny is a huge dick. Listen. He's Groucho Marx with a carrot instead of a cigar. And Groucho Marx is a huge dick. That's not what I'm going with. You ready okay. for this? Go. Cartoon rules. Basically, Bugs Bunny can get away with whatever the hell he wants, right? Yeah. By cartoon rules, he can day, he can end a scene or begin a scene or continue a scene however he pleases as long as it is fun for the audience. In this case... What he thought would be fun for the audience would be to continue the story that has taken place, which is aliens have come to Toontown or Toon World, Toon Land, whatever we're taking place in this case. But you know what he does it at the expense of? He does it at the expense of five NBA players plus Michael Jordan for number six. He puts their futures and their lives and their abilities at risk for the sake of entertainment. It's all about entertainment. Bugs Bunny's a dick. Total dick. I didn't think about that until after I'd sobered up. And you know what? I'm probably going to think of plenty of stuff after we talk uh, about uh, tonight's movie. Uh, I'll probably have plenty of thoughts tomorrow because I was drinking a heavy-ass beer tonight. Oh, me too. But what were you drinking? I was drinking an 8%er, and I had two of these uh, bombers. Here's the deal. We always try and drink based on the film that we're watching, but I was in a rush today. And I knew our movie had to do with ghosts. And I grabbed the first thing that I saw that had to do with death. Fortunately, I know my Latin roots a little bit. I never studied Latin, but I knew enough. When I saw a beer called Madit, to know that uh, it had a Latin root to deal with death. And thankfully, I was right. I had no idea until after someone looked it up later on. And by someone, I mean the silent partner and said, I'm pretty sure that means damned. Like you're damned to hell. The label quite a bit. It, it it does explain the label a little bit. This this is Bodit. It's an eight percenter. It is a double ale uh, brewed with spices by the. That's Una Unibrow, isn't it? Or? It is Unibrow. Yeah, not Unibrow like the uh, the eyebrow that covers your entire forehead. Unibrow. This is like Unibrow, which uh, they are. Are they French Canadian? Am yeah. I am I just uh, talking? Talking out of turn there. Which I'm pretty sure just means like a something. Anyway, it's a Unibrow Maldit. I highly recommend it. It was very tasty. It's 8%. And I, uh, I'm i pretty toasty and I'm going to keep drinking because we got some work to do. Well, I will see your 8% and I will raise you uh, a 10% 
American Imperial Stout by Clown Shoes called Undead Party Crasher. <laughs> and <laughs> Clown so, Shoes, man. Clown Shoes is a kind of like my cheat code because anytime that we have a movie and I need something with a crazy name, I go looking in the Clown Shoes section. And Clown Shoes, for those of you who, who may know, it's not really a brewery so much as an idea. And they contract brew out at different places. But they got some crazy ideas. And, you know, in previous episodes, I believe Hunt for Red October, I drank their Blaycorn Unidragon. I know I've drank in Clown Shoes before on this podcast. Yeah. Because, again, anytime you need, like, a wild idea, they have a beer for it. And the Blakehorn Unidragon was a Russian Imperial Stout. This is an American Imperial Stout, which means it's exactly the same, but with a little more hop character. And at 10%, and I drank a whole bomber of that, and then I followed it up with a Long Trail Limbo, which is a good 7.6%. It is... It's a fun day over here at Shellback Studios. Uh, so we got Limbo, we got Maudit, which means the damned, and we got uh, Undead, Undead Party, Party Crasher. Clearly the film that we have to do with has a little bit to do with death, and we're going to get right into it on Out of Sync Podcast. This is 1996, The Frighteners. <laughs> I do love that we have tons of headroom with a these mics, this interface, and then recording. I mean, I can speak way up here, and I'm still not peeking out this microphone. That's great. Why is Skype open? I don't know. Were we going to Skype someone in today? No, I don't. I don't like Skype is really, really, really so aggressive that you actually can't close it. You literally cannot close this. What if you all control delete it? You cannot close this program. That is look Skype close force quit. Oh, we're dealing windows. Never mind. Uh, Yeah. Task manage that shit. Die Skype. Why do I have to do that for a program Uh, that I have never used? It would be interesting to try and tie in Skype to uh, our recording software. Oh, at some I've point. got plans. I know how to do it. Good shit, Lou. All right. Um, okay. Let's. I have no way of segueing into what we're talking about tonight. Well, that's we're gonna do a firm cut here. Um, <laughs> for those of you just joining us, we just went on a good ten minute rant. What in the hell is going on out here? Before jumping into what we're actually talking about, which is 1996's Peter Jackson uh, movie before he did Lord of the Rings. That's the only way I need to describe it. That makes me physically ill! It's his first American co-production, produced by Robert Zemeckis, which I don't think we even mentioned while we were watching the whole thing. I did. I I said Bobby, though. Oh, yes. I called him Bobby. Um, And this is relevant because uh, The Frighteners was originally pitched I assume as an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Or That's, or what's the other one? Is it like Strange? Strange. Whichever one Robert Zemeckis was involved yeah, with. Yeah, what's the one that has Spielberg and Zemeckis? Is it Strange? I think it was Tales from the Crypt. <sighs> um, you know, you might be right. All right. So here's the deal. Uh, Peter Jackson at this point in his career... Big shot in New Zealand. I mean, he is and the that's guy. about it. Uh, he'd done Heavenly Creatures at this point, which he won an Academy Award for. 
Uh, I like Heavenly Creatures. Oh, no, did Creatures. he win or did he get nominated? I think he just got nominated. He got nominated for an Academy Heavenly Award. Creatures, which introduced the world to Kate Winslet. I, I will say that. That's... Is she a native Kiwi? No, she's English. Okay, um, that's what I thought. And the character that she plays is a transplant. She actually plays it as English. She doesn't even pretend to be New Zealand. Heavenly that's creatures, what you do when you can't nail an accent. Heavenly, well, Heavenly Creatures is based on a true story mm-hmm. uh, about two young girls who murdered one of their mothers. And I like it. It it In hindsight, it suffers from a lot of the things that Peter Jackson's later films suffer from. It's a little saccharine at times and... It suffers from flights of fancy in a good way, mostly. But in general, there did the, it have crazy Raimi angles because tonight's movie did not as much. I the one thing that Heavenly Creatures does have going for it, and I will recommend it because of this. It has the most intense murder scene I think I've ever seen in a film. Was it enough to earn an R rating? I don't know. Because this movie had this... absolutely nothing that should have earned it an R rating. Why was this movie rated R? I don't know. I mean, there was one guy who got his head blown off, but, but it he was, was cartoony and funny. Well, yeah. He, no, he was alive when he got his head blown off. Never mind. He was, but he, he was straight up ghost right after that. I, and, uh, you know, like I've seen worst, worst. I've seen worse on uh, Cartoon Network with as far as people getting their heads blown off. And that's kind of, it was cartoony. This the, this movie had absolutely nothing that should have earned an R rating, but I digress. Uh, Peter Jackson, uh, known for Heavenly Creatures at this point, uh, and has the ability... And a bunch of splatter films. Well, I mean, in, okay. after Peter Jackson gets his name out there in America, people looked at what else he did, and they discovered uh, Dead Alive slash Brain Dead. And Bad Taste, and Meet the Feebles... And there's another one that I'm forgetting. Meet the Feebles. Meet the Feebles is so weird. You know, that's probably why. Um, and there's there's at least, I think there's another one. That, oh, Forgotten Silver, which if you've never seen is I have a, not. Forgotten Silver is a mockumentary about a supposed New Zealand filmmaker who was way ahead of the curve making color films and sound films, you know, decades before anybody else. And it was one of those... Nanook of the North things where it kind of convinced people that it was real, but it was complete bullshit. I gotcha. Um, but anyway, he's got an in in Hollywood. And what he does is he uh, uses this to submit a treatment for a comedy uh, horror movie, which is a style that he's familiar with at this point. Uh, you know what? When you say submit a treatment, I'm going to go on a lot of rant, uh, on a lot of well, just I mean, tangents okay. right now. This is a tangent podcast. Go for this it. This is out of sync. I... And we are just I'm not going to stop heavy. you. Uh, you know what else he, he submitted a treatment for in this period? Nightmare on Elm Street 5. And he had a really interesting idea. If you ever watch, I think the documentary is called Never Sleep Again, and it's awesome. Peter Jackson came in and pitched an idea for a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel where kids um, would take a, a drug to not dream and because of that, Freddy was super weak. But then certain kids would then go into their dreams purposefully and just beat the shit out of Freddy. And that was his pitch. And that in their dreams, they would go into their dreams, they'd beat the shit out of Freddy, and they'd just have a wild time in their dreams. And then accidentally, a kid gets killed in his dreams by Freddy, and suddenly everyone's scared of Freddy, and Freddy gets powerful again. 
I like that. It's an awesome pitch. That's a great at pitch. I kind of wish it had, it had really happened. But because of that pitch, he had connections at Dimension Films, which in turn led him to connections at Miramax and then New Line Cinema. Which, of course, led to the trilogy. The trilogy. Capital T, the trilogy. Two capital T's. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> so you were saying he took... He he got into well. He was Hollywood. In, in Hollywood thanks to Heavenly Creatures. Uh, he got his uh, some of his ideas in front of Robert Zemeckis, uh, who he pitched him an idea for what would have been an episode of Tales of the Crypt. And Zemeckis, through a chain of you know, first being like, "Well, let's you know expand on this. Let's try something else," said, "Hey, take this treatment and write a screenplay." He commissioned him to write a screenplay, and that became tonight's movie, The Frighteners. The Frighteners. And while you're at it, cast my buddy, Michael J. <laughs> uh, wait, what? Uh, Michael uh, Robert Zemeckis famously made Michael J. Fox a huge star with Back to the Future. That's our Robert. That's our one of our other. There's a lot of uh, interconnections in this film. Uh, people that Peter Jackson worked with before, people Robert Zemeckis had worked with before. I mean, there is a little uh, Back to the Future uh, um, reunion here. Yeah, sadly, Eric Stoltz not involved. Neither is Christopher Lloyd. No Christopher Lloyd, but we got John Aston in in what would probably have been a Christopher Lloyd like role had it not been played by John Aston. Oh, I could see that now. That would have been fun. And then John Aston, stepfather or adopted father of Sean Aston, who played Samwise Gamgee in Lord of the Rings. This is six degrees of Lord of the Rings, pretty much. Oh man. Um, six degrees of Peter. Actually, six degrees of Peter Jackson would work, but only from pretty much this point forward, or Heavenly Creatures forward. Right. Um, so we got ourselves the Frighteners, Peter Jackson's first Hollywood movie, and unfortunately, it didn't do so hot at the box office. No, what? Well, I don't want to blame this on the quality of movie though, because it is. It's it's a high quality movie. No, it's, a little, it's critically. Uh, I think it's described as mostly positive critical reception. Mostly uh, positive. Yeah, it's you can't look at this and say it's a bad movie. No, it's it's a little long, but I sat there racking my brain trying to think how could we make this movie shorter. I can do it. You can do it. Oh yeah, but I don't know if I liked the the result. Like my thought was, you could take out the Jeffrey Combs character, and we'll get to a, mm. a we we'll get to a summary in a little bit. My, where my, we'll talk and about of course, the, but, my thought was, you take out the out of body Michael J. Fox. Yeah, that was my second thought, which you could lose that whole sequence, which we will get to, or lose the entire sequence after it, and make the out of body experience. See, I don't think climax. you can do that, only because of something we talked about during the film, which is this film has a little bit of depth to it. And by losing that particular scene, you lose yeah, the entire subplot. You do lose the entire subplot. So, smash cut. The Frighteners. No, what is the opening of this movie? The opening of this movie is a, a middle-aged woman who is being chased through her house. Um, you get a, a, a very Peter Jackson-esque wide-angle... Um, oh, if you're a fan of wide-angle lenses, uh, oh, you're this is love the movie, this movie for you. Starts with open on... An old dilapidated house, wide angle shot, and the camera just pushes into the building and then goes through a window, uh, straight through the glass. Uh, early CG work, um, pretty prevalent in this film, then through a hole, and you see a woman who's being chased by some sort of 
uh, it's a hey, poltergeist. I mean, it's they, a poltergeist. They... It almost looks like the house is is attacking her. The the wallpaper comes alive and and reaches out for her. I mean, it's not like the the rug itself is jumping up. But it takes it takes a form of a person. Yeah, and it looks vaguely like the Grim Reaper. I mean, as far as CG for this time goes, it looks great. The CG for this, in this time. movie looks pretty decent for 1996. Uh. Ooh, and hang on! I gotta throw this one out there. You know what else was '96? Heavy to, CG effects movie. I'm trying to think. One of King the, of Blockbusters, the King of July. So Welcome Jurassic to Earth. Park is '93. Is is Independence yeah. Day '96? Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah, it is. So compare this, a lot of practical compare effects. Compare these effects now. Was Independence Day a lot of practical? Especially the alien work. The aliens. Well, are the models were. But yeah. The I think there's a lot. The explosion. No, the explosions are real. What? Yeah, that though that's slow motion photography. What? Never mind. Fuck the CG in Independence they Day. Built They're mo- just goddamn brilliant. No, they built models of you I know, take the White it House. All back. They blew up a, a White House model in Independence Day. Those are wow. Practical. Those are practical effects at high speed. Never mind. I was about to just say compare this to the CG in Independence Day, but never fucking mind. Okay, back to the Frighteners. Yep. Um, so she's being chased around the house and, you know, hilarity ensues. No, it's scary. It's supposed to be scary. And which is kind of the, the something we're going to talk a lot about tonight, which is the jump back and forth, the blend and the not so blend yep. of horror and comedy. Yep. So she's ch- being chased around the house and eventually her mother comes out of her room with a shotgun and just... She goes ash, like Evil Dead ash. On and the, the angles are very Sam Raimi, so that's not just a reference to him owning his shotgun. That's, yeah, that's not just a kid. No, this movie is Sam Raimi-esque. Peter Jackson, I would assume, is clearly a fan or influenced by the same influences, but yeah, she just pops out of her bedroom with a shotgun and just unloads on the carpet, which is strangling her the younger woman at the moment. I got a sense almost in this scene that mom has had to deal with this before and we find out that might be the case. Yeah, she's pretty blasé about it. Comes out, shotgun, cocks, boom, done. The Frighteners. And then we get a nice little cut to the news giving us the exposition cliche. However, there's a twist. There's some great exposition. There is a twist on the news giving you exposition cliche in which it is not actually a newscast or someone reading the newspaper. What it is, is an editor proofreading a story by a uh, character who we see twice. Yes, by a young, let's call him a cub reporter. Yep. And he is writing a story on the fact that a bunch of young, youngish people, you know, 30s, uh, people who seem healthy have been dying from heart attacks. But when the coroner actually examines them, their hearts are in great condition, as are their arteries. Mm, did, did they say that? Yes, they did. They say... Oh, in that story, but not, it comes not, out later it on. It comes that out later. That's not but, the case, but okay. But the point being that the specter of death has arrived in... This small town. Uh, we got to take that line out. I'm sorry. That that's just too cheesy. Oh, says I the lo- editor. I do. I do like that she objects to referring to death as an anthropomorphic personification, which is kind of a red herring to mm-hmm. the aspect of death being the cause of all these murders. There's a pretty strong red. It's it's barely a red herring, as in it's not even just like a false clue. It is the answer. Until you find out later what really is the answer. But anyway, so we, 
get this news story, which is intercut with a funeral that he was reporting on, where we are first introduced to Frank. Spontaneous recurrent psychokinesis. Oh, boy. Oh, this could be the worst case I've ever seen. To Frank Bannister, played by Michael J. Fox, who is great in this movie. Uh, This is, unfortunately... Uh, Michael J. Fox's last major role in a film. Um, he probably would have continued and have an amazing career if not for early onset Parkinson's disease. Yeah, he spent... This fucking blows people. Yeah, he, he did this movie. He jumped into Spin City, and then unfortunately he was unable to continue acting, at least in the lead role. He got a couple... I mean, he still has uh, smaller parts in films. And smaller parts uh, and, in TV and, uh, shows. And TV shows, sorry. His, his role in Scrubs is amazing. Um, it's he, one of my favorite episodes. And he's a regular character on The Good Wife. Is he? He is. Um, as far as I've seen promos with him in it. Recently, there was a show where he was a major character. I think he's had some treatment and he's doing okay now, which is great to hear. I mean, this is freaking Parkinson's. This, this disease sucks. Yeah. And if someone can work on a you know better treatment for it, that'd be awesome. I'd appreciate it. Yes, because I'd like to see some more Michael J. Fox. Yeah, you know, it's 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 a crappy one. And it's not just uh, nostalgia. It's not just me wanting to the see... The guy's good at this. He is a really good actor. He sells interacting with ghosts in ways that other actors in the film just do so poorly. You, When someone else is interacting with a scene uh, with a ghost that's not there, it will cut... The movie has ghosts. I don't know if we've mentioned that. Not yet. The movie is Ghost, and Michael J. Fox will interact with them because he can see them, which we will learn in a second. And other actors will later have similar scenes where they will interact with something that's not there, and they look like they're just caressing air. Whereas Michael J. Fox somehow sells that there's weight behind him yanking on something that's not there. So anyway, we are introduced to Frank Bannister, played by Michael J. Fox, at a funeral where he is handing out business cards as a psychic investigator. Immediately, you think to yourself, this guy's a douche. Yeah, he's behaving like the worst ambulance-chasing lawyer that you would see in a TV show, just finding the worst opportunity and just trying to take advantage. I want you to think of all of like those guys who come out and are saying, like, I'm psychic and I can speak to the dead and I'll like help you with like your pain. Con men that you've dealt with. And think of them doing like the worst things that you can imagine as far as like preying on the emotions of people who just lost loved ones. And you get Frank Bannister in this opening scene. It's just brutal. At a funeral and just handing out business cards to the morning. Um, someone from the paper snaps a picture of him, which becomes relevant later. But he, for the most part, is kind of chased away. Uh, where he... Uh, Speeds away in his little VW bug and runs into I a think fence. It's, it's a shitty old Volvo. Someone says shitty old Volvo, but it's a. Wait a minute. It's a old old Volvo. It's a. It's not a VW. No, I think that's like a seventy four Volvo. Wow. Okay. Um, which is weird because later he has is a more slightly more modern like late eighties Volvo that's more boxy. Right, but that was we'll that get was to that. a flashback, and he's more modern. <laughs> anyway, so he he. Speeds off, and at one point he ends up crashing into a guy's 
yard. He's a terrible driver. He is a terrible driver. Oh, he crashes geez. minimum of three or four times. He he crashes at least four times in this film. I wonder if it wasn't meant to be a thing later on where we find out that uh, spirits are constantly fucking with him while he's driving. Oh, I believe it. But we don't get that. And I, that would have been like one little thing that would have like justified all the terrible Frank Bannister driving in this movie. But they, they never give it to you. They just let it be like, no, he's a terrible driver. Forget about it. Yeah, well, we're never even going to say it right out loud. But no, So he crashes into the yard of someone who ends up being slightly important, uh, Ray Linsky. And he crashes, he busts his fence. He runs over his gnome. Though I will say he does that maliciously. Because Ray's kind of a douche. Uh, so what ends up happening is Ray suddenly finds himself having ghost problems. And uh, lo and behold, he has to call the psychic investigator, Frank Bannister, to come take care of this ghost problem because, well, his wife kind of insists on it. Okay, well, folks, I can do a clearance, but it's not going to be cheap. Although I do want it for a six-month guarantee. His wife has a very open mind. Very open Way too open. So they call Frank to come and exercise their house. And Frank's like, sure, I mean, it'll be expensive, but hey, why don't we just, uh, you know, say like uh, you forget we, about the fence and we call it even. We just call it even. Uh, forget about the fence. And you know what? I'll take care of these ghosts. And so he takes care of the ghosts. I yeah. mean, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a well-timed comedic sequence, which then jarringly switches to a um i don't even know how to describe the sequence but suddenly it's off-putting ray's head has a ghostly number on it look if you're trying to freak me out it's not gonna work okay i think it's 37 and frank's a little freaked out frank is freaked out and he does not appreciate you know what he he's gonna do he's gonna joke. blame his cohorts oh it turns out he is a con man however he but is still also a psychic he can actually see ghost, but instead of using that in any way that could be helpful to people, he decides to use it to con people out of money. You guys didn't even bang the toilet seat lid. You made me look like an asshole. We strained out backslifting that heavy ass band, Frank. Oh yeah, who was the idiot who put the number in the guy's forehead? I, it's not a great put together scheme, but it works. And you know, I would like to see a movie that takes more of that tack as. He's more of a con man, which this movie sort of hints that's what the story is going to be, but then kind of abandons that. Yes and no. Yeah. There's um, one or two more scenes about it. I but. mean, he's clearly, he's still a little messed up in the head uh, over events that we'll uh, talk about in a moment here. Uh, but for the most part, we're introduced to the fact that Frank actually is a psychic and he actually talks to the dead and he gets them to haunt people. And then he gets paid to uh, exercise the demon, which is really just him saying, OK, guys, let's go. OK, we're good. They paid us. Man, I hate that trunk. Yeah, well, I don't want you guys spreading your ectoplasmic muck all over my car seat. Oh, ain't that a bitch? The ectoplasm is the only thing sticky enough to hold a damn car together. And every once in a while, it's going to. Se- OK, so it's going to seem like we are withholding information. We're not. We're not. That's how the movie parses out. It's it's plot and it's backstory. It is very, very measured in its release of information. It hints at something and then you wait 10 minutes and then there's an exposition scene where it's explained why they hinted at that earlier. All right. So that's our introduction to Frank. Our introduction to our other lead character who is 
uh, Ray's wife, uh, Lisa? Lucy? Lucy. Lucy. Uh, who is Lucy? Thank you. Uh, her introduction to Lucy is Lucy is a nurse who goes to visit the house that was we see haunted at the, in the first scene. And uh, she gives treatment to the, uh, the, the, younger, the younger Patricia. Patricia, who cut her hand during the earlier chase sequence uh, from the poltergeist earlier in the film. But her mom says, no, 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 no. She cut herself with a kitchen knife accidentally. Yeah, she was cutting vegetables in the nice knife slip. This is set up in a way where Lucy... Lucy, Lucy seems innocent. So Lucy looks at this and being like, is this elderly mother abusing her daughter? Mm. But we as an audience know, oh no, like there, there's something going on with a ghost here. But Ooh, really what's yeah. you know, but really what's going on gets revealed much later. Much Ooh, later. Uh, like um, everything else. Um so Lucy is totally on board with Frank. Uh she's the one who insists that her husband call Frank to uh, remove these ghosts from their house. Uh, we later we follow Frank back to his half-built house because we later learn, once again later learn, he was an architect and that he was building the house until something horrible happened and he stopped. Uh, and then he's got three ghosts that live with him. These ghosts, I guess ghosts typically just kind of linger around where their bodies are. He has convinced these three, hey, come, you know, hang out with me and we'll... Uh, have it's, some fun and I'll make some money, but you guys mostly get to just enjoy being away yeah, from the graveyard. Yeah, it's better than the the cemetery, I think, is the only plus for those ghosts. And they are played by John Aston, mm-hmm. who plays the old sheriff, who's an old the West. judge. Judge, the sorry. Old judge. The old hanging judge from the old West. Uh, G. McBride, who plays a guy who died in the 70s with a sweet afro. And then someone else who is... A geeky guy who's played by someone else. Uh, we learn kind of that the judge, he knows his, uh, there, there's something that's put out and not really brought up a lot, but that's that ghosts kind of get a chance to go over to the other side once every hundred years. And that the judge is kind of falling apart. And he's like, you know what? Next time mine comes around, I'm going to go. Do they specify a hundred years? It they seems do say a like, hundred years. All right. They've got, so they're kind of in limbo and essentially on earth waiting for their chance to pass over to the other side. In the meantime, they either hang out in the cemetery with Arlie Ermey. Holy Jesus! Or they <laughs> hang out with Frank and con people out of money. Because the latter is more fun, I guess. I mean, it seems like they have some fun with it. What happens to good old Frank is Frank is outed as a con man by the local paper. And uh, he's just not having it. And he's just going to have a bad, bad week. And uh, as an audience member, I think you're, as a viewer, you're supposed to feel bad for Frank. He's still being kind of outed. Dick, but he's being outed as a con man while he is conning someone. But it's not because he's not a psychic, which is what people believe the con is. Yeah, it's- no, the con is that he is using his actual psychic abilities to see spirits in a way to con people out of money. <laughs> Um, He's a legitimate con man, just not for the reasons people think. So, after all of this setup, and we've spent a long time on setup, we actually get our inciting incident, which is Ray has died. Despite being a workout freak. He's healthy. He is a healthy man. He takes his B vitamins constantly. He is working out. In every scene we see him, he is in workout gear or mid-workout. Also in workout gear. So 
Frank, as kind of a just a whatever, helps out Ray with speaking to his wife. And he So before that, I'd like to say we get our first one of our first no, it's probably our second or third big exposition scenes. Uh, which one did I miss? He runs into Ray in an alley right. on his way to his own funeral. And Frank explains to Ray everything about being dead. As in, we get we get the rules. Of we being get the dead. rules. You're dead now. Why didn't you take the the corridor? Two, the corridor. Now you've got to wait a hundred years. Uh, in the meantime, you can't really touch anything, and no one can see you. I can see you. Let's go to your funeral. Well, he says, "Can you give me a lift to my own funeral?" To my own funeral, right? Um. So, Lucy, who still believes that Frank actually is psychic. Um, because hey, he is. He is asks for his help in talking to Ray, and we get uh, them going to dinner, and we find out the reason is because well, she just needed to ask where Ray like left all of their money. She gave him sixteen thousand dollars, and the lawyers can't find it because it was blown on a bad investment. Oh, blown on a bad investment. Whoops! And we realized that Lucy, which kind of wasn't into Ray. Even though they're married. Yeah. Whoops. Well, it was hinted at earlier when she was watching the video on Patricia. Uh, her client. It, her client. Her her client had a documentary made about her because her boyfriend. Killed 12 people. And scarred their foreheads. And cut numbers into their foreheads. In order to keep score. And she makes a mention at the early. Oh, she was 16. She just fell in love with the wrong guy. It could happen to anyone. Womp, womp, womp. Oh. Um, Sad trombone. So she believes in Frank unabashedly for no good reason. No good reason. She has never given a good reason to believe in Frank, and I'm going to mention that several times because she does some dumb shit. So I'm going to call this <sighs> the reverse Scully effect. So in the X-Files, Scully is the skeptic. She refuses to believe anything. And that would make sense if she lived in our world where these things aren't real. But in the X-Files, aliens are real. Ghosts are real. Werewolves are real. And she doesn't believe any of it. And it's harder to... After, you know, nine seasons when she's finally believing things... In the universe of a movie where ghosts are real and people can talk to them... It's a little less believable that pe- everyone disbelieves Frank, except for her, for no reason, just believes him. So for the next 20 minutes, what we get is Frank kind of figuring out what's going on. These people who he keeps seeing with numbers on their foreheads, they all are end up victims. Dying. They are victims of a cloaked figure that he has seen once or twice. And at this point, he decides to chase down. And unfortunately... The cops are kind of like, why does Frank keep showing up at all these uh, alleged heart attack victims? uh, And he, at one point, he starts pointing out when people are about to die. That, I I would say that's suspicious. I mean, he is suspicious as fuck at this point. I mean, I would put him behind bars. Oh, yeah. He definitely has some, uh, there's probable cause to put him behind bars. Uh, and it ends with the newspaper editor from our uh, original news exposition. Our snooty British newspaper editor. Uh, her, her dying in his car because he tried to save her. You killed me! You bastard! You're sick! Is this how you get your 
And at this point, he just says, I got to go to the cops because I know they're looking for me at this point. He just turns himself in. He's like, look, I, I'm turning myself in because I'm trying to look as innocent as possible here because I am. But, of course, that's just not going to fly. The cops are like, we got to put you in lockup. And, unfortunately for him, there is a... He's an he, FBI. He's, a, he's an FBI, FBI agent. agent. And, honestly, like when you look at like what he specializes in, you ask the question, like, is this guy, like, take care of the X-Files to the FBI? Seriously. He... <laughs> it's Let's just put it out there. It's Jeffrey Combs. Well, okay. In one of the most Jeffrey Combs-ish roles. I'm making the car move with the power of my mind! Ever? It's it's up there. He, he is nervous. He is twitchy. He... He... <laughs> Jeffrey Combs' performance is so intense... That he changes the cinematography. Um, it's normal cinematography, and then whenever Jeffrey Combs walks into a room, suddenly it becomes handheld wide angle, super like six inches from his face, and he starts warping the film around him. Uh, additionally, all of the funny bits at the for the rest of this movie center around him. Everything else about this movie from this point, there's been a fun mix of funny and horror. Up until this point, and once you once you get here, um, what's what was the name of his character? Dammers. Dammers. Agent Dammers. Agent once you get Dammers. to this point, really the only funny bits involve Agent Dammers, and that's where you the only time you get the blend of funny and uh, and horror for 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 a while. So Michael J. Fox, at this point, has turned himself in because he knows it looks suspicious. Lucy still believes in him, though. Lucy still believes in even him, even though basically saying like. We're pretty sure he's involved with these murders somehow. He keeps showing up at their scenes. Oh, and by the way, his wife died in the same exact way. And she had a she had the number thirteen carved into her forehead with a razor blade that we haven't been able to find, but that we know we belonged, know belonged to, him. to him. So at this point, Agent Dammers has a theory, and he okay. We got to explain again. Agent Dammers, he more or less is like the X Files guy for the FBI. Yes. So he basically accuses Michael J. Fox of psychically killing people. Yes, stopping their heart because he once had, he once saw evidence of a woman who stopped a frog's heart. Therefore, he knows it's possible. Therefore, Michael J. Fox, Frank Bannister, is killing people with his mind, and maybe he doesn't even know it. And he is this Grim Reaper character that he has seen is just a projection of his guilt as he kills people. It's plausible. Actually, it's that would have been a good movie. It's actually might be a more I interesting watch movie. I would, I would watch, watch the uh, shit out of that. I would movie. watch Agent Agent Dammers, FBI. But in the meantime, as like an X Files spinoff. Yeah. In the meantime, we get to see Agent Dammers nervously uh, refuse to sit down and tell Michael J. Fox that he is a killer, while and, just commenting on this is the scene. Well, I mean. It's a very, very serious, a very scary and very Raimi-esque scene. Yeah. Oh, man. It is just tight, fast-moving cameras that push in on people That constantly. ends on bat nipples. That ends on... Uh, the scene... Jeffrey, <laughs> Jeffrey Combs is giving all this, you're, you're killing people. And then, you know, Michael J. Fox is having an actor freak out. You know, he's, he's shaky and, and he's nervous. And he's considering the fact that, am I imagining this? Jeffrey Combs is so... Are you trying in, to do it now? You're in, trying to kill me now, you? are trying to kill me now. You can't do it. And he rips open his shirt. 
I'm wearing a lead breastplate. Which with with bat nipples on. Yes, it. complete with bat nipples. Like <laughs> Joel Schumacher Joel Schumacher bat nipples. And this is yet another one of the super extreme tonal shifts, which is really dark of it's a scene where he is telling Bannister, Michael J. Fox, you're killing people. All of this is in your imagination. You're actually killing people. Which would be a great movie. Which is a really interesting theory and, and movie and all that. And just randomly rips open his shirt. I'm wearing a lead breastplate. And it was during this scene where we also asked the question, is that a Hitler haircut? Yeah. Very, very tight on the sides. A little kind of, you know, he's got like some pomade in his hair and it's off to the side. It's it's a Hitler. This, anyway. he He's missing a mustache. He's a mustache away from a straight up Hitler. So this. He's bre- got a skinny tie and, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the lead breastplate, uh, Frank being arrested, accused of all of these murders, should be the end of Act 2. However, I'm not actually sure what cons- is constitutes as Act 3 in this movie. I think we have two Act 3s in this movie. Yeah, we have an Act 3, and then we have a pause. And then we have another Act 3. So, Act 3, Part 1. Act 3, Part 1. Sit down, viewers, as I tell you of The Frighteners. Act 3, Part 1. Michael J. Fox playing Frank Bannister sits in his cell, seriously considering the fact that perhaps he has been killing people with his mind. Lucy... The love interest comes to visit him in his cell and convinces him otherwise. Why are you doing this? What are you afraid of, Frank? And then they see the Green Reaper, and she is supposed to be the next victim. Convenient? A little bit. I'm not actually sure what the uh, the aspect of death, as he was referred to as, what his uh, pattern was as far as who died. It I, seemed to all revolve around Frank, though. Did you notice that? A little bit. Um, and Jeffrey Combs makes a mention of that, except for the guy who dies in the bathroom. Other than he is he near was still him. there though. He's there. It's interesting. But everyone else, Combs insists, ha- uh, Frank has a motive for. But he sees a number on Lucy's head, and then he sees the Grim Reaper come for her. But it is fought off by Frank's valiant friends. Um, and we missed the part where the judge was killed in. In, oh, we yeah. missed the entire museum sequence. I mean, I was going to skip over it, but just because it, it was kind of, there was a I, long way to get there. It's a lot. Every scene, I said this while watching the movie, Peter Jackson is great at sequences. Every sequence by itself is a lot of fun, and it holds together. But structurally, they're often not needed. Often there's a lot of extraneous sequences, like the museum sequence, where there's a shootout with ghosts that... Does nothing in the long run. It was funny. It's like funny kind of... and it's amusing, and it's and I don't say you should cut it because it it's funny and amusing, and you lose it. It's, it could be shortened. It could be, it could be shortened. That has the worst cops ever who just pull their guns despite Michael J. Fox not having any weapons. It was bad cops. Let's agree on that. But yeah, bad cops. So back to Frank and Lucy in the jail cell. They are saved by Frank's ghost friends, who are then killed again. Again, double killed. They're double killed by the Grim Reaper. But in all the confusion, Frank and Lucy are able to escape. 
And Frank comes up with a brilliant plan. Like, I can't only, protect you as a as a person because the, yeah, the only way that I can protect you is as a ghost. Is as a ghost. So he gets a gun ready, puts it against his temple, which kind of is a big character moment for him because you realize like he's fine with like just dying. Well, he knows what's on the other side. Isn't the entire fear of death, fear of the unknown? Right. He has no unknown. He knows exactly what's on the other side. You either hang out as a spirit, which is going to happen. Right, but he, he's like done with his life. He's like doesn't give a crap about his, his life anymore. Yeah, he's not really been living. His as, time on Earth, he's like, whatever. Whatever. He's just wasting time at this point anyway. He doesn't really care. But Lucy stops him right before he pulls the trigger because she has a plan. And here's the thing. This is where I go, what the fuck, Lucy? You have zero evidence at to this point that frank is anything more than a fraud yeah she has not been presented with any information that he actually can communicate with the dead other than a dinner where supposedly he had some information that we were not shown uh of her dead husband which clearly a con man could probably get a hold of she has zero evidence at this point that anything that he says is true uh, but she come, but she is still the person who's like, hey, I got a better idea. Let's give you a near-death experience rather than blow your head off. Yep. So let's give you a sedative and then put you in a deep freeze, a very deep freeze. It was negative 20. 22 Celsius? At least negative 20. It might have been negative 22, which is really cold. Yeah. Like way too cold. Um, but it does kill. It works. Yep. It does kill him. Lucy's told him he has about 20 minutes. Before his like body actually like, starts to like. Yeah. Really or there's down. actual tissue damage, which, probably brain damage, which is. It's it's flaky on the we side. Debated there's not it, a lot of science on this. Movie but logic, whatever. Let's get for 20, 20 minutes is fine. Sure. Um, Give it a But time for fun, it. I need to point out that there have been people who have been known to like freeze to death and be brought back to life like two hours later. So he has a near death. He has a straight up death experience. Because yeah. he dies, although his body is preserved, and she has until 9 p.m. to resuscitate him. Before he suffers damage. But then Jeffrey Combs shows up and kidnaps her. Because he's kind of crazy. He is batshit insane. But to now, be fair, he's apparently seen some stuff. Yes. He's seen some nasty stuff. And now he has an Uzi. Yeah, where did that come I from? I don't know why. I got an Uzi. I may be crazy, but I'm crazy with an Uzi. Uh, he brings her to the cemetery, which is convenient because that's also where Michael J. Fox. Has uh, he gone. knows that um, Bannister's in the freezer at this point. He's like, yeah. "I'll bring you back like twelve hours later." Eleven hours later is what he says. Yeah. Of course, I will bring you right back in eleven hours' time. Because he's like, at eleven hours, hopefully that guy's just good and dead. Because fuck that. Then guy. we've got a foxicle. <laughs> a Michael J. Foxicle. Oh, that's not funny. Um. And sure enough, because Lucy is still the next victim, she's got the number on her forehead. The, the, shat, the cloaked fi- figure, yep. the aspect of death, the Grim Reaper, is after her. The uh, cloaked figure, the Grim Reaper, is after her. And uh, now ghost version of Frank Bannister has a very uh, slapstick, very campy ch- chase. And I remember watching this movie when I was younger, and, and this is where it lost me. This is the point in the movie where I just go, I don't care anymore. This is where it becomes like the really cool horror slash comedy and just becomes like the slapstick comedy to me. Uh, This is the point in the movie where I'm just kind of like, and I'm done. The problem with this part of the film, and once again, I like the film. The problem with this point in the film is that 
the tonal shifts start being random and often. It goes slap shit, slap shit. Slap shit is fine. I mean, I know you meant slapstick, but yeah. slap shit's fine. It goes slap shit and then scary and then funny and then scary and then funny and it never really settles in for the rest of the movie. We have a we have a we do get a scary moment in the graveyard where you're almost certain because there's no one left to save them that uh yeah, the Reaper Arlie is going Ermy. to yeah is going oh. Arlie Ermy saves them briefly. Get back to the goddamn ground. Go unorganized. Grab that stick gobble teleplasmic shit. Um uh, and then uh he gets killed. He gets killed by the aspect of death. The Double Grim death. Re- yeah. Double death, thank you. And uh and then uh Frank Bannister shows up with the sergeants, I guess he called him in the movie. Yeah. Because he is with, basically playing the same character from Full Metal Jacket. He's playing the gunnery sergeant from Full Metal Jacket. So he shows up with the sergeant's uh, machine guns and just guns down the Reaper and makes a discovery that the Reaper is a character that we haven't mentioned in this podcast at all. But it's been mentioned a few times at this point. Yeah. Uh, this is a character played by uh, Captain uh, Teeth Jr. himself. Jake Busey. Jake Busey playing the son, of course, Johnny of Captain Teeth, Gary Busey. Gary Busey from Out of Sync favorite Point Break. Who is a known serial killer in this universe. We've been introduced to his character a few times. Johnny Bartlett, who is the uh, partner in crime of Patricia from the beginning of the film. The woman who was being chased by what appeared to be a ghost. She was... It totally is a ghost. But it's not a ghost. It's actually her boyfriend. Hey. Guys. Um, so it turns out that the Grim Reaper is actually just another ghost who is still on our murderous rampage. And his goal seems to be purely numbers. He just wants to hit the high score. Yeah, because he got 12 while he was alive. And he just wants to, he wants to try and beat Bundy. I've been carrying on the good work. Got me a score of 40. Before he uh and beat that Russian serial killer who claims he's got fifty plus. And he's at what forty? He's at forty at this point. He's at about he wants to make Lucy forty one. Yeah, he's at like thirty nine forty. His goal is to beat that Russian guy. Uh to be fair, he has to share this score with his uh, girlfriend who's still alive. True. Trisha, who we were introduced to as the uh daughter who of the apparently abusive grandmother who is actually apparently just But if this if they were handing out uh credit for these murders, they would get an ampersand between their names. They would be considered a unit. Right. It would be you know. if they had writers guild rules, they would be an ampersand and not an and written out A and D. Right, right, right. Um Hey, Hollywood rules, by the way, while we're talking about it. Uh, it turns out that he, it's not the Grim Reaper. It's not death. It's none of those. It's just another rogue ghost who happens to, while have been alive, been a psycho killer set on murdering people and wants to continue so as he's dead. And also, hey, FYI, the ghost that killed Michael J. Fox's wife. Same guy. And led to him getting his psychic abilities. So, and he knows he knows Michael J. Fox's character. He said he talks to him by name. Hey, Frank. Frank. Hey. Which again is like, why does he keep targeting people around? Got me Frank? a score of forty. Frank, at this point, uh, when, when, what we know of him at this point, he's an architect who's kind of a dick to his wife sometimes, but he still loves her, but still kind of a dick. That's all we know about Frank before he gains his powers uh, to see ghosts. So why is he the 
why is he the target? Everything why around him. Why is he him. the focal point of everything in this movie? Because he is, I, I guess. guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we needed to tell a story. Frank manages pretty much to defeat Bartlett. I mean, he had. He has him. But he gets zapped back to life. Oh, he just timed it slightly wrong. He gets defibrillated, which is not how defibrillators work, but Hollywood Louis. rules. Mm-hmm. He gets defibrillated. He gets himself uh, brought back to life. He gets injected with some lidocaine and some adrenaline. We spent too much time researching lidocaine during this while this movie was still gone because we still had a whole act three part two to go through. Yeah, we, we still at this point. So at this point, we have covered three full acts of a movie, and we still have twenty minutes left. So what should have been a great third act? Uh, Michael J. Fox does his out of body experience, goes beats up the bad guy, discovers his dark secret. And defeats him, but then suddenly he's zapped back to life. And we get Act 3, Part 2. Act 3, Part 2, in which our hero finally does something, but this time as an actual person instead of as a ghost. I mean, they basically have the same fight again. Except now, instead of, I need to be a ghost in order to fight this guy, the new plan is, let's get his ashes to holy ground. And Lucy has an idea of where the ashes are. They are probably at Patricia's house. Yeah. Because she puts it all together. Lucy shows up at that house. She still thinks Patricia might be a victim at this point. We should say that. And she tries to get Patricia out of there because she's pretty sure the ghost of uh, Bar- Bartlett is going to come and kill her. However, it turns out that that's not the case, that she is well aware that the ghost of Bartlett is out and about and killing people, and she's actually helping when she can. And this is the scene I was talking about earlier where Michael J. Fox is very good at selling, touching a ghost that isn't there. The actress who plays Patricia does the worst job of selling that she is lovingly stroking a ghost's face. It just looks like she's pawing the air. It's, it just doesn't really work. Um but we do what we do get Michael J. Fox suddenly also appearing at this house because reasons. How did he know to get there? There's no reason because I'm, I'm really pretty sure, sure Lucy didn't tell him like, hey, by the way, I have this client who I'm pretty sure is being abused by her grandmother, but may also be uh, uh, involved he, with the ghost of yeah. Uh, he is Bartlett. Just come back from his near death experience. She decides to take off. She may have said a couple things. But he is in no position to really pay attention to what's going on. But he shows up perfectly at the right time. But anyway, in all of her wherewithal, Lucy's like, hey, here's these ashes. Patricia lied about this being the ghost of the ashes of her father. These have to be the ashes of Bartlett. And sure enough, his name is written on the urn. Yes, it was just covered in a little bit of ash. Just a touch. Just a touch. It's like, oh, fine. You know what? Whatever. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Like, this is, again, I've already felt like I've gotten enough out of a movie at this point, so let's just let this go. Okay. So we... Um, yeah. oh, I'm just letting Bannister, it go. Bannister's just decides, letting it go. We need, we need to get these ashes to holy ground. And conveniently, this their creepy house is attached to the old sanitarium where the murders all took place which also conveniently has a chapel on the premises. So they enter this old hospital, which is on the same property uh, as Patricia's house, and they start entering it, and they start marking their way towards the chapel. But Michael J. Fox 
starts having visions of the day that all the murders took place. And this is where we find out that Patricia wasn't just kind of the accomplice. She also took part in the murders. Yes, she is a happy participant in the murders, as in wielding that shotgun. They get 12 people killed. She walks around. She's carving numbers and foreheads. And the movie is getting pretty dark at this point. Fortunately, it's going to get lighter because you know who's showing up? Agent Dammers, Agent Jeffrey Dammers. Combs. Yay. And we, get, we get some nice kind of funny moments again with him uh, before Patricia blows his head off with a shotgun, which again, like if it was kind of gory, I guess would have been the reason to get this movie rated R, but it wasn't. It was cartoony no, and funny. His head explodes from a shotgun blast and is immediately replaced with a ghost head. So and it's like, hey, 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 he's a ghost now. And why is this movie rated R? Yeah. Uh, I, feel it, like, I feel like the MPPA was like, fuck this movie. We hate New Zealand. <laughs> rated R. So <laughs> Michael J. Fox in all of this, in all of this excitement, Frank Bannister manages to get shot with an Uzi in the arm. By Agent Combs. By Agent Combs. And fall through three floors. Not dead yet. Not dead yet. Patricia uh, shows up and chokes him out. Uh, like with a shotgun, seconds. chokes him out because she's out of ammo after having uh, a magically uh, unlimited amount of ammo until it comes time to blow his head off. She chokes him out in a good 10 seconds, which is <sighs> not how choking someone out works. But you know what? Here's the thing. I'm going to blame it on the blood loss from the gunshot wounds. Sure. That's the only... I'll, I'm gonna, I'll say that. I'll give it a pass based yeah. on the fact that he's also been shot. So Michael J. Fox is now... He's been strangled to death. Lucy is lying on the floor. Bartlett is being a ghost dick. Being a ghost dick. Uh, his ghost form now is more human and less Grim Reaper. And he appears as when he was uh, electrocuted in the chair. And he wants Patricia to kill Lucy. And he wants to watch. Oh, kinky. So he's about, she's about to kill Lucy. And Michael J. Fox's ghost form grabs her, and then rips her soul out of her body. Because because you can he knows that's th- going to work. He knows that works now. And he goes pulls to the corridor. her up into the corridor of light, which leads to the afterlife. Now, fortunately, and Bartlett chases after. Bartlett chases. And... I mean, this is... <laughs> I mean, it's literally day sex machina. Yeah. Frank gets up to heaven, but Bartlett gets Patricia right before they reach that threshold. And he's like, we're going back to Earth, Frank. <laughs> We're going to get us some more. And then the corridor turns into Gravoids from Tremors. <laughs> yeah, and don't. then they go to hell. And so Frank is in heaven. Uh, Bartlett and, he, and Patricia are now in hell. And thanks his to friends, Dune Sandworms. His friends, who we are now double dead. Double dead friends show up. Not the judge, which is too bad. Yeah. But, uh, I would have liked to seen like a live judge version yeah. because they appear more alive. They appear as like their heavenly forms. They, they got a Gene McBride got a haircut. He no longer has an afro, which is too bad. That he's still was wearing, awesome. He's still wearing pretty wide lapels. I'll give him that. It was still more modern than what he was wearing. But uh, his friends who uh, are now double dead up in heaven and say, his wife and his wife and his wife and his wife's like you go back down to earth and you bang the shit out of that oh, chick. Oh, it's not your time yet. Go go get some boning on. Because uh, that's what living people do. And then when you all die, we'll have a very awkward conversation about who you spend the afterlife with. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, 
that's about how that would go down. Yeah, so he goes back to Earth. Uh, he apparently has no ill effects from his uh, two near death experiences. Near death experience. His his death experience, his gunshot wound, his strangulation, his freezing. He's fine. He's good. Uh, and they start a new life together to the sounds of a cover of Don't Fear the Reaper. Movie over. Movie act, over. Act, act three, three, part, part two. two is now over. The Frighteners. Folks, this movie did not do well in box office. Nope. It got its ass kicked. Um, It may have been in part uh, due to the rated R uh, nature of it and it just failing to catch an audience in that regard because this is a movie that probably would have done well uh with a teenage audience yep i still think also if it had been a little bit shorter it might have pulled in more people because it gets more views people are more willing to go watch a 90 minute version a 90 minute movie versus you know an hour and 50 minute movie so i mean the conversation's been had like what makes something a cult movie and it might be like there's a you know kind of this this audience that just loves this movie and defends it uh, almost religiously. I will say this is a... Did I never hit record? No, we're recording, aren't we? Okay. Jesus, Jesus dude. Okay. Oh, my God. Freaked out for a second. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> that would have been brutal. Yeah. Um, um, yeah cult what, movies. What makes a cult movie? Any, is it It's something that appeals to an audience that is not mainstream but usually has a second life. I'm not sure this movie had a second life. Well, it did. It did. it did. Here's what happened. Peter Jackson made Lord of the Rings. And, and then, people are like, what else has this guy done? And then his whole back catalog had a, a second life. I don't know if this movie had any more of a second life versus Bad Taste or Brain Dead slash Dead Alive. I don't even know which one of those titles is appropriate. Brain Dead is the New Zealand name. And Dead, Dead Alive, Alive is the American name. Okay. It's been revisited. I don't know if it's ever been reevaluated, though. Because it wasn't. It wasn't evaluated as a poor film to begin with. Yeah, it was. Ebert beat the shit out of this movie. Ebert basically said, like, the tonal shifts do not work. Fuck this movie. I don't disagree with him, but I do like the movie. It's not bad. He's right in saying, like, it, it's all over the place, but I feel like it was all over the place on purpose. Yeah, I, I think it's the movie he wanted to make. Which brings up the bigger question in all of this is, when you go back and you look at Peter Jackson's pre-Lord of the Ring output. His early films are splatter films. They are cheap horror films, but that's fine. But they're funny. They're funny funny horror films. Sam Raimi had funny horror films. But why do you give him, what, $300 million to go make Lord of the Rings? He must be a hell of a salesman in pitch meetings because that's a lot of money. Because Yeah, I mean... From Lord of the Rings forward, Peter Jackson essentially has unlimited funds. Yeah, Heavenly Creatures... Was more or less acclaimed, more but more or less only received funding from the New Zealand Film Commission or whatever the hell their name is. Yeah, it was done pretty cheaply based on like their standards of producing film, which is we're going to try and do this on a shoestring. Um, then Frighteners, which again he pulled off, had a twenty-six million dollar budget, and I'm sure most of that is on the back of Robert Zemeckis saying like I believe in this guy, I'm going to produce this film. But it doesn't. But it doesn't do great. Just jump right up to. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, this is something that you can find. Um, Peter Jackson, who did direct the version of King Kong, that had uh, Jack Black and um, Naomi Watts. Naomi Watts in it. Um, Adrian Brody. Oh, that's who that guy was. I couldn't. Colin think of his name Hanks. For... Was Colin Hanks in that? Yeah, he plays the cameraman. 
No. Yes. Yeah. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> um, Andy Circus is in well, it in multiple roles. Friend, he plays really. The Peter cook. Jackson worked with Andy Circus. Really? Huh? Yeah. Um, he also plays King Kong. Oh, I thought that's what did he have a role other than King? Yeah, Kong? he I plays mean? the cook on the ship. Oh. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that at all. Anyway, um, so for I those guess of you who don't he, know Peter Andy Circus. He played the assistant to Nikola Tesla in The Prestige. Oh, is that where we know him from? Yep. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the few times you see his actual face on camera, because most of the time he is uh, a CG character. He is he is the master of motion capture. Of digital makeup, I guess. Digital makeup's one word for it. Call yeah. it motion capture. That's what I do. He is anyway, man this, among men, as far as... It, or he's the god among men reason, for motion capture. He is... Uh, in the Force Awakens, he is the the big bad guy, the uh, Snoke. Yeah, Snoke. And because you, that was a motion capture character, and if you want to have motion capture characters and be the most badass as possible, you have to you get hire Andy, Andy Circus for some reason. All right, listen, we'll do this really quick because some people may not be as big as film nerds as we are. Andy Circus has played Gollum from Lord of the Rings. He played Caesar in the reboot of the like King Kong. Uh, he played King Kong. He uh, did Caesar in the redo uh, the remakes of the Planet, Planet of the Apes beginning stories. Rise um, of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, those and... ones. Um he has uh basically any motion capture character that you look at and is like, "Wow, that was really well done." With the exception of Smog the Dragon and Jar Jar Binks. Was Jar Jar Binks wasn't really motion capture. That was not a no. motion capture performance. You're that correct. was that was strictly CG. Um I mean, they God, had, I hate myself for knowing that they had a reference because he was on set in costume. Not they the character, not the guy who put in the voice. Ahmed Best, he was on set as Jar Jar Binks in costume. Oh, that poor bastard! They, they weren't entirely sure that the CG was going to work, so he's wearing a Jar Jar costume with like a visor, so he can see through what's essentially the neck. They weren't, and there are shots in um, Phantom Menace. That are actually like rubber Jar Jar feet and hands and things like that. It's not all CG. Oh. Anyway. I don't know how the hell he pulled this off. But somehow he convinced uh, New Line to give him an insane budget to make three movies. And to do all practical effects with his boys at Weta Workshop. Yeah, it's not just that he convinced them to give him all this money. It's like, hey, um, I'm going to need $300 million. Um, and I'm going to put, I'm going to hire all of my friends. I'm going to put most of that money towards this company called Weta Workshop, which, um, which I own, uh, and we're going to film it in New Zealand. Um, so I don't have to be far from home. Uh, and we're going to like, how does he do this? This sounds like a con. This sounds like some sort of, uh, I don't even know what's going on here. It's just, oh, oh, you need $300 million. Yeah, we can make that happen. Um, just you know what? Just take this. We'll worry about the accounting later. Somehow, also, I think he had to procure the rights to Lord of the Rings. I don't think he had them. I don't think he did. Either. He managed to get those as well. Yeah, God. And we damn. know for a fact he didn't have the rights to the Hobbit when they started negotiating. This guy's a freaking legend. As in pitch meetings, he is a Jedi. Oh man, Peter Jackson, good on you, mate. Good on you. Okay. That's Australian, and he takes extreme offense to your comments. Do they, do they not call their, their buddies mates? Yeah, but New they Zealand? don't say good on you. Oh, fair enough. I don't, maybe they do. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the ghost effects are what led to the ghost army in Lord of the Rings, actually. Mm -hmm. 
And he, Peter Which, Jackson specifically calls out the Frighteners in either the commentary or one of the special features in Lord of the Rings, saying that the ghost effects are what le- it led him to believe that maybe they could pull off the army of the dead in Lord of the Rings. And then for some reason they mean? decide to make the go- the army of the dead way more intrinsic to the plot than they are in the actual novel. It was borderline deus ex. All right, Frighteners, as we wrap this up, do you recommend this movie? Yeah, I'm I'm a fan. Uh, it, we've mentioned a lot of its problems. It has major. It's it's slightly too long. It has some story. It has extraneous story bits that just don't necessarily need to be there. I have a hard time trying to figure out what to strip out. Um, stripping out things would make it a more streamlined, tighter movie, but it also would make it less of a of kind of an interesting movie. And this is a movie that has only survived beyond uh, Peter Jackson's obvious uh, later successes and then reevaluation of his earlier work. It survived mainly because it's, it's kind of idiosyncratic and interesting in its subplots. Jeffrey Combs, I would watch an entire movie of just Jeffrey Combs being this character. But to be fair, I'd also just watch an entire movie of Jeffrey Combs, like, reading TV Guide. (laughs) As long as he reads it in the voice of the question from Justice League. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Um, This is a a recommend for me as well. Um, Issues that I take with this movie may only just be things that I, I feel like it wouldn't appeal to a mass audience. And that does have a lot to do with the tonal shifts. Um, but my friends are mostly film nerds and I think they'd appreciate this one. Yeah. My Uh, biggest problem is honestly, the cinematography is so inconsistent. It it will be locked down shots intercut with like crazy handheld wide angle stuff. And it's close up wide angle, close up riding. And it's very jarring and it's intentionally jarring, but there are times where it's so jarring that even our silent partner, pointed it out as like i i'm not a film person and i i think this is distracting as when it calls too much attention to the film craft um as far as recommendations go um if you are looking for early peter jackson above anything else including heavenly creatures which he did get the academy award for i would recommend brain dead nomination but yeah for or, or dead alive as you are, are more likely to find it in the states as and I, I love that movie. I, it's so much fun. It's such a cheesy... It's very Raimi-esque if we're talking about... If, if we're comparing Peter Jackson to Sam Raimi, I think Sam Raimi actually may be a better director overall as, as things um, like A Simple Plan and some of his, his smaller work has shown. He's better at reining himself in, but... Dead Alive slash Brain Dead is so much fun. And I recommend it. If you haven't seen it, seek it out. Heavenly Creatures is a great prestige flick. And it's really good. It's got some great performances from Kate Winslet and Melanie Linsky. I would say its strongest bit, as I said before, is the murder scene, which is almost David Lynchian in how intense it is. And as far as other recommendations... Army of Darkness? Yeah, if you like this, you know what? If if you like Sam Raimi films, especially things like Army of Darkness, 
which might be my favorite of the Evil Dead, but is probably also the weakest of the Evil Dead trilogy. This is probably right up your alley. It's It's got a lot in common with Army of Darkness. Uh, and then as far as paranormal comedy slash action, I mean, easiest one to point to is Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters was exactly what I was going to. Because Ghostbusters might be the most successful merging of crazy paranormal ideas and comedy in in a film. I mean, that pretty straightforward. Yeah. And then, of course, if you like Peter Jackson, go watch Lord of the Rings. Go watch Lord <laughs> of the Rings. Skip uh, every film he's made since. I I will stand up for his King Kong, but it's not actually that great. His So Peter Jackson's King Kong is way too long, uh, but it holds together as a film. I actually, the funny thing about his King Kong is I actually think the director's cut moves faster than the uh, theatrical cut because the, it's longer, but all the scenes that are added in are action sequences. So the film feels shorter, but still the film is, is, is too long. And I'm still waiting for a director's cut that's shorter than the theatrical cut. Yeah. Uh, oh, there is one. Which one? Uh, Alien. Really? The Alien director's cut is shorter than the theatrical cut. That surprises me. But Ridley Scott also says this is not a director's cut. Oh, right. It's that movie. Okay. Alien is is one of the ones where he says this isn't a director's cut. They asked me to make a director's cut. I made a shorter cut of the movie with different scenes, and it has more modern editing. But it's not really a director's cut in the sense that it's not the cut that he made originally and then the, the... the studio then cut it down right he was happy with the original cut and he's very open that he is happy with it and they asked him to make a director's cut he he delivered a different cut of the film and it happens to be shorter gotcha um lovely bones not great Ugh. hobbit to, uh, we could have Good a whole God. conversation on the hobbit later let's not even talk let's not touch on the Hobbit because we could go for an hour and we're not going to anyway yeah, you know what, Peter Jackson, go back to making some short films. Please, please. Something shorter. Uh, and Andy Serkis, keep doing what you do, because you're the man. That is how I want to wrap this thing up. How about yourself? Oh, yeah, let's go for it. I let's, got nothing. Let's tie a little bow on this. Ready? Let's do it. I'm Steve Shannon. I'm John LaDuke. This has been Out of Sync Podcast, a product uh, of Shellback Media, LLC. Check us out, uh, shellbackmedia.com. Go to Out of Sync Podcast at gmail.com to send us an email. Find us on Twitter at Shellback Media. Thanks to the Green Lights for our opening and closing music. Thank you for listening. That's right. I'm talking right to you in your earbuds. Thank you. Um, we still, after 23 <laughs> episodes, do not have a good way to end this podcast. Thanks for listening, folks. Okay, thanks. Please drink cinematically. <laughs>